Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Ron Holt, who founded the company Two Maids and a Moth. Now, he took this company and grew it to over 91 locations across the U.S. before selling it in 2021. But before we get there, just a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Now, as you're going to hear in today's conversation between John and Ron, Ron and his wife took a fateful trip where he came across a super yacht. Now, he was curious, so he ended up Googling who owned this super yacht, and it ended up being owned by JM Family Enterprises, who funny enough, a few short years later, was the acquiring company for Ron's business. Now, I went online to to Google this yacht myself and found a great feature on it, which shows details of the inside and out. And I have linked to that in the show notes section, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Ron Holt, who, as I mentioned, found Two Maids in a Mop back in 2003. Now, he grew this business a couple of years later to around 12 locations when he started to think about potentially franchising the business. So he went to Las Vegas to a franchise conference where in just chance fate, he ran into Fred DeLuca. 
who is the owner of Subway, who gave him some phenomenal advice and really kickstarted Ron into franchising this business to over 91 total locations before selling it in 2021. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his company, Two Maids and a Mop, is Ron Holt. Enjoy. Ron Holt, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, welcome. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Excited to talk about my story. Yeah, so two maids and a mop. Describe how you got into this business. Well, you know, my original dream was to be the next Tom Brady. Turns out he was going to play for another 60 years. Um, so <laughs> number two dream was a cleaning business. Not, not really. You know, no one ever grows up um, to want to own a cleaning business, probably not even a home service business. Um, I was like everybody working in corporate America. I was in my 20s in Atlanta, Georgia, and just really not fond of the day-to-day of corporate America. Lots of bureaucracy, meetings, a lot of inaction, sure. and just didn't really have a lot of entrepreneurship in my genes or my, you know, my background. But I, for some reason, wanted to start a business at some point to get away from the doldrums of corporate America. And when I looked across the landscape, I wanted to be in a business that I felt one that would sustain itself, that would be able to um, keep growing over the course of the next you know, several years to even maybe decades. I wanted to be in an industry that I felt was sort of broken. Um, and I wanted to be something that was easy enough for a C student to see, succeed in. So cleaning <laughs> industry it was. <laughs> I've seen a theme here, football, quarterback, See students. There you go. I'm getting the picture. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So you started this cleaning business. So it's like as we think about residential. There's a there's a franchise up in Toronto where I'm at. I think it's called Molly Made. But basically, you can call them and they can come in, clean your house or office. You can have them on subscription or you can do a one-off. Was that the business model effectively? Yeah, it's all recurring revenue. There's there's a few one-time jobs, but that was another thing that was really exciting and intriguing to me is the industry could sort of build on. It's sort of like compound interest. And so you you have one new customer at 150 bucks. That may seem like a $150 ticket, but if it's 52 weeks, it's really more like whatever 150 times 52 is. <laughs> How did you sell against or differentiate yourself from uh, the kind of black market, if you can excuse like sure. that, that term, like the, the off market, I can't think of the right term, but basically people who set themselves up to clean houses that are uh, that aren't under a franchise, they're just independent people who clean houses. So like, how did you That's a good differentiate question. yourself? So early on, I didn't really know. I, I just, I was, you know, the small business owner just trying to make it. I didn't really necessarily have this plan to build a national empire. Uh, I just wanted to make it. I was in Pensacola, Florida. I wanted to be the best cleaning service at Pensacola, Florida. And so my thoughts were to just work harder than all the other cleaning business owners. I felt like I was a little bit, even though I was a C student, I felt like I was a little bit smarter than the other folks in the industry. Uh, I definitely was uh, in a in a, my mid-20s. So I felt like I had the stamina to, to do the things I needed to do. I would work nonstop. You know, but at a certain point, you recognize that even if you are working harder than everyone's, everyone else around town, you still can only scale that you know, 24 hours. There's, there's only so much you can do to work hard. And 
at some point as I was building the business and saw the opportunity, I did have this idea and vision to, to start scaling it. So the, the scalability of my hard work was just not possible. So I started just sort of looking within and trying to look at other businesses, read books, you know, didn't have podcasts then, but trying to do as many things as I could to learn what can we do to separate ourselves. And I was fortunate to kind of dumb my way into a book called The Purple Cow written by mm, a guy. Sure, Seth Godin, yeah. Um, love the book. It's now 20 years old, I guess, but the, the book's a pretty simple concept. You see cows, they all look the same, but if you see a purple one, it stands out. You remember when you see this purple cow forever and ever, it's like a stamp in your brain forever. And so that simple concept resonated with me because I didn't really have my version of a purple cow. It wasn't unique at all other than my you know blood, sweat, and tears. So um, I started looking at some of the weaknesses of the business and the industry. And one of the things that kind of stood out was most of the employees just work for a paycheck. They just wanted to get paid for the work they were doing, which is an honest transaction. But there wasn't a whole lot of alignment in what they were doing versus what I wanted to do. So I worked hard for a certain reason and a purpose, and they worked hard for a paycheck. So I wanted to figure out a way to align the interest of ownership with employees. And the thing that kind of popped in my mind is to let customers tell us what their level of satisfaction would be. And then we would use that numerical rating. We graded everyone's satisfaction on a really simple scale of one to 10. That number would directly determine what our employees earned. That was their paycheck. And so that to me was one way that we could fix some internal issues, just get guys to, you know, want to work harder and, and think like an owner. Um, and then we would be able to package that into a marketing tool that would allow us to separate from the competition and become the purple cow that we were looking to. Um, How did you ensure that your employees didn't game the system? Like we've all been there where, where someone wink, wink, nudge, nudge says, oh, look, you're going to get a survey from my boss. Sure. Make sure you give me a 10. And of course, being the recipient of that pitch, it kind of leaves me the bad taste in my mouth. I'm like, what? like, ah, now I have to give you a 10. If I don't, I feel like a prick. And, but that's not my true feeling. Like, how did you avoid getting gamed? Well, so there were various iterations of it. Early on, I actually had this really, I had a lot of bad ideas and a lot of good ones, but some bad ones out there. One of the worst ones was to allow the pay for performance plan to extend beyond just the compensation for the employees, but also for the actual price of the service. And so if you rated the service a one, which is the worst it could be, then you would pay close to nothing. And so you would be maybe shocked. I was pretty shocked to learn that a lot of consumers gained that <laughs> to their advantage, you know? And so we had to abandon that pretty quickly. Uh, even after we left that phase of it, there were still a lot of iterations. We called people early on, which is kind of silly to say in 2023, but that's how we communicated um, back in the early 2000s. And so once we started getting a, a, a better way to communicate directly with people and let people know that their paycheck their employee, the, their, the people who clean in their homes, paychecks were determined by that. There was a lot more genuine authenticity to those to that feedback than, than what you would imagine. It so was, you were transparent. You said, look, this is going to drive their bonus. Like, we, what do you give them? So you give them yeah. a five. And so we had a sales work. team. Somebody calls, if you, I don't know if you've ever hired a cleaning company before, but everyone who inquires about cleaning services really only cares about one thing. And it's the first question they ask you, what does it cost? Sure. And so everyone just assumes if you're a cleaning company, you can clean. So Tell me how much it costs. So we would pivot within seconds of hearing that question. And we would start talking about our pay for performance plan and how feedback determines our employees' paychecks 
And that's why we're going to do a great job. So everyone, literally every one of our customers who hired us knew that that was in place. That was good. They were going to be asked that question toward the end of the service. So most of the time, I'm sure there were some empo- there were some employees out there who did attempt to game it, but most of the time it was a pretty authentic, genuine answer. And we didn't really beat people up. I mean, people are people. They make mistakes. They're humans. So anytime there was a mistake and there was a potentially a lower rating, it wasn't as devastating as it sounds because we also assume people again would make mistakes. So it was an average of all the cleanings over the course of a two week pay period, uh, which softened the blow if you just had a bad day or a portion of their comp would be, would be determined by this rating system. Yeah. Yeah. You had to, in the early days, you had to really pull out some strong algebra skills, but over time we use technology to to make it a little bit easier. (laughs) I think you may have misheard my question. What proportion of their total comp was driven by the variable, 100%. 100%. Uh, 100%. Thought, yeah, yeah, 100%. Now, we had, to, we had to respect labor laws. You know, there was minimum wage laws and even overtime laws. Uh, but other than that, 100% of their paycheck was determined by that. So wow. if, everyone, if someone's average was a one, you know, over the course of a two-week period, they would they not earn zero. Wage. They would still earn minimum wage. But that, also would, that also would beg a few other questions, you know, about the employee. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Wow. That's such an, a fascinating a way to drive a good customer experience. I still haven't gotten a, an answer though to my original question, which is how do you differentiate against the the kind of mom and pop, unbranded, non-franchise cleaner uh, before they get to experience the service you're going to deliver? I get once they've experienced the the ownership of like the, the people who have the sense of ownership and they have a great they get that but they they pick up the phone they call two maids and a mop and there's someone that's cheaper is this your point of differentiation this 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 paper for no doubt or yeah. something else so most of the time when I say most of the time ninety percent of the time someone was inquiring about a cleaning service they had already hired someone in the past mm. very few virgin maid service customers out there so um, the reason they're calling us instead of that other group is because something didn't go right. You know, whether it was they were late or unprofessional, they broke something and didn't replace it or whatever. Um, so we would ask that question, have you ever hired a maid service before? If the answer is yes, then we said, well, why are you calling us? And they would tell us pretty openly about what some of the issues had been with other cleaning companies they had hired. And then that's when we would hit them with the pay for performance plan. We would tell them what we Got do it. to combat that. And oftentimes we would also talk about our vision for the future. And very few cleaning companies in Pensacola, Florida had a vision to take over the entire industry and scale across the country. So we would use that to our advantage and we would talk about that big dream and vision and consumers wanted to be a part of that. They wanted, they were pretty excited about it when we talked about it. So most yeah. of the time they, they cared about their dust bunnies being removed. But when you tell people we want to remove your dust bunnies and when we do that, you guys are going to be a part of a story. You, you're in the, the pilot location of this national brand that's brewing right now. So people people kind of got excited about it. That's cool. So you never, you know, a lot of people get stuck inside a business where they have a passion. I think Michael Gerber, the guy who wrote the E-Myth, talked about an entrepreneurial seizure where, you know, you love cleaning houses. You, you know, you're doing it for somebody else. And you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. And you start a business. You were like the opposite of that, right? You had yeah, no I, I had no, <laughs> it was, it was a dumb uh, 
good mistake. Uh, I, I didn't know that you were supposed to really be good at a trade in order yeah. to own a trade related business. I, I just, I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to build something big. I didn't like corporate America and, you know, quite frankly, my capital was limited. You know, there was no banks or investors lining up to, to invest alongside me. So a hundred percent of the business was funded by my own funds, which for a 25 year old, is somewhat limited, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were there were certain realities to what type of business I was going to start, um, but uh, no, I definitely even even to this day, no one wants to hire me to clean their home. That's that's <laughs> that's a fail. So, what were the operating metrics of the Pensacola business? So, this is before you franchised. Like, just give me top line, bottom line, growth rate, like just the key kind of KP, like what, what were the key metrics on the business in well, just the Pensacola location? Sure. So we, okay, let, let me give you some backstory. We operated within just Pensacola, just one single location for about two years. Um, we didn't have this meteoric rise right out of the gate. In fact, the first several months were very desperate because the business wasn't just rolling in. I didn't know how to market uh, I didn't know what to tell customers. We didn't have the pay for performance plan in, in those early days. Uh, and I just thought, you know, pretty blue eyes would be enough for people to want to hire us. So um, <laughs> we had a tough start and I had I had saved about $150,000 over the course of the last several years prior to that to get to a place where we could fund it and get through some of those early growing pains and, and take it to the next level. And I used essentially every one of those $150,000, which was a lot now, but you go back 20 years, 150000 was even more, especially for a 25-year-old. So I don't know, too many 25-year-olds sitting on $150,000. Yeah, it, it was very scary. And there, were not, there wasn't a strong revenue at the top line. There, there, there wasn't a bottom line to, you know, to even talk about. And so there was a crisis when we had to, I had to really look within because it was just me standing on an island to figure out is this business even sustainable? Like, can forget scaling across the country? Can it, we even make it with one location? And two things happened. One, this whole pay for performance plan kind of, you know, the idea of it occurred. I was staring at um, the Gulf of Mexico. I still remember the moment. I uh, had a tough day, pulled into this little parking lot that, over, that was looking to, at the Gulf of Mexico, beach, you know, white sand, waves, everything. And I had just finished reading The Purple Cow, and I literally had an old school like notebook out with a pen. And I was just jotting down ideas, and that's where the pay for performance plan grew from that particular day. The other side of that is marketing. This is going to sound not that innovative right now because, again, it's 2023. But in 2003, this was super creative, especially in the cleaning industry. But three letters, SEO, uh, became a pretty important part of our marketing strategy. Again, that's good. People are going to like laugh right now and say, Psh, everyone does that. But not everyone did that back in 2003. And so I just immersed myself in everything that could be SEO. And within just a few weeks, honestly, it doesn't happen that fast anymore. So if anybody wants that secret, there's no way to do it in two weeks. But back in those days, if you put the work in, then in just a few weeks, you could literally be at the top of a, of a, of a local community's rankings for free. And so um, we started generating a lot of qualified leads very quickly without having to do a whole lot of investment towards those. And when we got the phone calls, the, you know, the magic happened and people hired us. 
Once that happened, that, that was about three to four months into the business, then revenue did experience that meteoric rise. And so we finished the first year with a grand total of $110,000 in revenue. So it's not a lot. <laughs> um, but fast forward to the next year, we increased revenue by five times that. We had just wow. over $600,000, in fact, in revenue. And that all occurred very quickly. You know, we went from how am I going to make payroll three months in to, you know, when are we going to open store number two? Just a few And months. how much of that would flow to the bottom line? Like what would have been your EBITDA margin on 600? Yeah, we, we, so we were a standalone business. We had pretty strong margins, about 25 to 30%. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. Right. So, so yeah. Um, I was in a position to pay down debt. Do I go buy a boat? Florida, of course. Um, or do I invest in our second location? So you, you probably I know, think the I know the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we chose to reinvest. I'd, I had um, really fell in love with the industry because I felt like there was a lot of weaknesses that we could exploit. I had really learned a lot about what needed to happen. Uh, I didn't know what the next several years were going to bring. But at that moment in time, we were dominating the local market and we did it literally overnight. So I thought to myself, why wouldn't we do this everywhere? So we started opening location after location after that, one after the other, eventually to where we got to 12 corporate locations. So you have 12 corporate stores. And again, repeating the same playbook. So obviously the paper for performance uh, plan is, is incorporated across all 12. I'm guessing also you used your SEO skills, but just local markets. So you picked off another market. Yep. And when I type in, you know, made in the name of the city, you're your name popped up in Google. Yeah, well, so the first the, the first three that we opened, one was, of course, Pensacola. The next two were close to the home market. That's That was the decision-making behind those locations. After stores one, two, and three, I scoured the southeastern part of the U.S. and tried to find the biggest opportunities with the least amount of SEO presence by the maid service, the local maid services. And so... These, How did these, you do that practically? Like, yeah. what, what's, what was the tool you used to evaluate the SEO chops uh, in a local market? It was probably called Yahoo then, um, but people call it <laughs> Google now. But it's soon quite, Bing with the the AI integration. I think it's going to be Bing in a minute. That's true. <laughs> well, I just Googled. You know, I, I would I would go to the market. There's a, there's a there's about a handful of keywords related to our industry that consumers you could see were using over and over Got again it. to search for what we were doing. And so I would just literally search for those. It's different today. So you, this wouldn't work today. You need more science and logic. To sure. It. But back in those days, like a grandpa, um, you know, we, we could do things a little bit differently. So I would I would go to Nashville, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, Atlanta, Georgia, and so on, and, and look for markets that were exploitable uh, from an SEO perspective. And I would just dive headfirst without knowing a whole lot more than that, honestly. I love it. Amazing. <laughs> It's amazing that your whole marketing strategy was really sort of pinned on this, the SEO, the availability of these words in search, which I guess at the time you were competing with a lot of mom and pop shops that wouldn't have been thinking about SEO, right? That's all I was competing against. There were a few yeah. franchise organizations, but most of these guys were ABC cleaning company and SEO was not even, they didn't even know what it stood for, much less how to do something about it, you know? So yeah. we would go in and I was the SEO guy. I would be the technician and would just optimize the heck out of the content. I would 
uh, work database, you know, and all the other stuff that we need to do. Uh, it, it was it was a little bit easier uh, back in those days than it is today. Today, it's dominated by agencies who who control it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot more. I'm reminded of. Um... Do you know Nick Huber, the guy behind Sweaty Startup? Do you know that guy? I've heard, yeah. yeah. yeah I don't yeah. know him personally. So Nick has a, he, he's a, we had him on Built Cell Radio. He talked about the sale of his uh, moving company. But but Nick is funny because he talks about, like, you need to look for an industry where they still use fax machines. And that's the that's the industry you want to go dominate. And uh, it sort of reminds me of what you're describing here. So fast, So you get to 12. I got it. So... Tell me about the decision to franchise. What what precipitated that? Yeah, so I, I didn't know a whole lot about franchising. In fact, I was on the other side of the fence. I just assumed we would grow with these corporate stores. We were doing well with that. We had reached a bit of a critical point, though, because our infrastructure, our home office, was literally one and a half people. It was me and a part-time employee. And we had all these individual managers operating those 12 stores. And I, I really just wanted all the money to go to the local stores. I didn't want there to be this like big fancy, you know, ivory tower and all the you know blitz that comes from that. So I really worked hard to keep that infrastructure small. The problem that sounds great in theory. The problem is it's very difficult to manage situations. I was on the road. Thank goodness I didn't have any children or anything at the time because I was just nonstop moving, you know, and um, that. That was uh, very frugal, and it sounds really Warren Buffetty. But the truth is, I, I needed to I needed to improve the infrastructure. I needed to invest in the infrastructure to uh, create more resources and have more talent to do the work we needed to, to manage everything. And I wasn't really prepared to do that. I just didn't want um, that. wasn't something that was exciting to me. And so on a whim, that was like when you looked at that number to really professionalize the business put the systems in place, hire the people. Like, did you, did you, did you quantify like what that would have taken? Yeah. And so that I did. And so we were, we were going to, we were going to need anywhere from four to five additional people to just do the work that was needed to properly manage all 12 locations. Cause we had um, field operations that needed to be audited. Uh, we needed better training in some cases, all the employees worked for us. And so we had several hundred uh, cleaning personnel working for us and really oversaw about one and a half people. We had uh, a sales team that was getting real, um, just sort of strapped for time because they couldn't really keep up with the demand. Um, all of that needed improvements and investment. And I honestly, at a certain point, wasn't in love with the idea, but thought that's what we were going to do. But on a whim, decided to just sort of visit a franchising conference in Las Vegas and everything changed. Um, I had heard all these negative things about franchising from franchisees, especially in service-based businesses that almost felt the franchisor was an enemy to, to their business. And I just was scared of that. I didn't, I didn't want growth to be bad. I wanted growth to be good. I wanted everybody to share the victories. I didn't want there to be a winner and a loser. And so um, that's what I thought of franchising, but I said, I'll give it a shot. So I went out to Vegas, you know, did all the normal things you do, went to the seminars, heard the keynotes, went to the round tables, all of that was okay. Um, but it was a chance encounter, um, at a table outside of one of our sessions. I had walked outside to just check my email and, um, 
across the table from me was this was this older guy, and he started asking all these questions. It was kind of intrusive, and I was like, man, she just get off my back, you know. But I'm from the south, so I just was real nice. And so I answered all the questions, kind of bragged a little bit. Like, hey, I got 12 locations and all this other good stuff. And being a good Southerner, I had to return the favor. And so I said, well, what do you do? Um, and he said, well, I'm Fred DeLuca. I own Subway. We have 42,000 global locations. And so, <laughs> you know, immediately got my you know interest peaked and started just asking him question after question. He spent the rest of the afternoon with me one-on-one at that table. And I learned in that four hours more about franchising than I could have ever learned in any of the roundtables and so on. After I know it was a while ago. What was the most impactful lesson Fred taught you about franchising? That's such a good question because you won't believe. So we we had multiple meetings after that. Um, and he was a very he's, he's passed since then, but he 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 was such a humble man when you think Subway and if you're the founder of Subway with 40,000 plus locations across the world, you think, you know, you're, you've got the Midas touch. You're just perfect at everything. But all he saw were the imperfections, the mistakes and the things that he wished he had done differently. And so he, in part, he would tell me those things. Uh, the, the biggest thing that he talked to me about was when you start growing this brand right now, the brand you have has a very strong bottom line. It just, makes a killing, you know, 25, 30% margins. Um, and that's great. That's why people are going to want to be a part of this. But over time, franchisees are going to come to you with ideas and, new, and um, opportunities to improve things. And so we did a lot of things manually, quite frankly, like we, we used our hands a lot. And so we pushed a lot of buttons instead of automating buttons. And that's harder and not easy, but it was also profitable. So what he said, and this was something that he used from his time at the subway, that as these franchisees bring these ideas to you to make their life easier as an owner, uh, understand that that comes at a cost and every little 0.1% that you pull from the bottom line is going to add up. And what you're going to potentially see is 10 years from now, you've made the life of every franchisee owner easier, but the bottom line is not nearly as strong. And so he lived that life at Subway. At one point in those early days, Subway was just killing it, double digit multiples, which is unheard of in food service. And so um, that was his biggest takeaway. I mean, there was a bunch of other things he talked to me about, but he, he said, just, just have your eyes open to every idea that the franchisee is going to bring to you is very good. But usually it's not how to make more money. It's how to make life easier. So hmm, That's a really interesting tip from a legend. Where did it go from there? So assuming that Fred, the light switched on after Vegas and you decided to go ahead and franchise it. Yeah. So he, he taught me that you can be a good franchisor. Franchisees shouldn't hate you. Um, doesn't mean they'll always agree with you, but there can be two winners in the franchisee franchisor relationship. And I believed him, you know, so I went back and said, that's what we're going to do. And so we had those 12 corporate locations. We had since relocated to Birmingham, Alabama, and that was at the time sort of the center of our footprint And my wife's from Birmingham. And so it just made sense to relocate there. Um, so we kept our Birmingham location as our one corporate store, but all the other 11 we franchised to different people. And that was step one. That was, that was, we didn't want to sell to people startups. We just wanted to get these 11 transitioned into franchise um, owners, um, you know, managed locations. 
And that took us about a year. It took us a little bit more than a year, in fact, because uh, we didn't know really how to sell franchises. We didn't know all those things that, that we take for granted now because that seemed like back of hand stuff were, were all new challenges for us. And so um, after the year or so that it took for us to transition all those new locations, then we started looking to franchise new locations, the markets we had yet to open in, which was a whole other mountain to climb because that that was a unique situation for us as well. But what were the basic metrics? Like how much did a franchise cost up front? And then what was the rev share? Just give me a, like the ball ballpark. Sure. Ground, you, you know. Yeah. So that didn't change a whole lot over time. Those early franchisees that purchased our corporate stores really were purchasing the business more than the opportunity. And so there were different terms for them. Um, well, what but, about the new guys after the 12? Yeah. All the new guys would pay a, Tariff, initial tariff, initial franchise fee. That was the right to the dirt that you know you had. You owned an exclusive zone, exclusive area, exclusive area of zip codes. Um, you received training support both pre pre open and after you open ongoing. Um, all of that was a, we in return for that we had a six percent royalty that we charged. Uh, we sorry, what, what did they pay for the dirt like the territory, the kind of upfront fee? Yeah, so that did that did change over time, but anywhere from thirty to forty thousand uh, dollars for yeah. the territory. Typically, a territory was going to be you know, somewhere between half a million to a million people or so. Um, sometimes yeah. a little, early on, the early franchisees were very fortunate that we didn't know what the heck we were doing. And so we would have sold the entire state of Texas probably to somebody. Um, so we we sold large territories early on, and we had to we had to shrink those later on. Yeah. So you got them down to five hundred thousand to a million population. So thirty to forty up front, six percent royalty. And then there was like a sales and marketing fee of some sort. Of thing. Yeah. So there was a six percent royalty. That was all the support trade and everything. There was a two percent what we call ad fund fee. Everyone in franchising pretty much has one of these. That's if you see a a. A TV commercial for a, a household brand that that's a franchise. That's usually um, it, that's usually the result of the investment in this pooled collection of money. And so there was six percent, two percent ad fund fee. We were very accustomed to managing the corporate locations, and so as a result, we could do a lot of the things in house. We didn't outsource a lot, in other words. And so we had our own internal marketing team. The software that we use, we had we had created ourselves with our own team of uh, software engineers. Um, all of the support people were former managers of those twelve locations. We just brought them into the home office, and so they helped with field training and support. And so most of the things that we did were from our two hands. There wasn't a ton of outsourcing. Got it. And and again, when when a fran like you, if if you had a franchisee buy a franchise of two mates and a mop. Early, I'm sure there was investment, but once they'd sort of made the investment and got the thing up and running, like in year five, like would their operating metrics be similar to what you had in, in Pensacola, like 600 grand on the top line, 25% margins? Like, were they, yeah. was anybody able to replicate that or was it not quite as lucrative? Yeah, I mean, like anything, revenue scales. So the, the larger the top line, the typically the larger the bottom line. But sure. uh, you would need revenue to pull off a lot of that. Uh, early on, there was not a ton of profitability. Typically, there wasn't a lot of positive cash flow during the first 12 months. That was all a ramp-up period. Uh, but sure, yeah, I mean, um, most of the folks were able to get to a place where they weren't 
quite replicating what we did at the school. You got to remember, we weren't paying royalties. We right. don't work ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So once we introduced that that eight percent, that six and two percent, it did reduce the margins. Yeah. A decent amount, but they were typically for a, a high performing franchise. You typically saw twenty uh, percent margins. Great. So, yeah. Right. Not, okay. Not all of them, of course. You know, and every sure. there were different markets you know, dictated a few margin changes. Operators, you know, a, a franchisee may decide to buy a boat, and so that would pull the margins down. And how did you deal with their ability or not? to sell their franchise to somebody else. Did you allow them to do that? If so, how did you govern that relationship? Yeah, no, we we applauded that, celebrated that, because that meant they were having a, a, a successful exit. We wanted people to make money, you know? So if there was two ways to make money, we felt like you could earn dividends or distributions from the cash flow, or you could sell the business or both, I guess. So. Um, we wanted people. If you wanted to sell, that wasn't a that wasn't a scary topic for us. We wanted to talk about it and go celebrate it when it happened. And, and but I know with a lot of franchise systems, the franchisor has the right to veto the deal. Effectively, they have to prove the new. Absolutely. Buyer. Did you so guys retain that right? We would always vet the new person. So if someone said, "Hey, I want to sell my business," um, we'd say, "Okay, let's talk about what that valuation may look like." Let's talk about that. What that process looks like. There were different ways to skin that cat. How some people may have wanted to sell it to their neighbor, and other cases they didn't have any idea who was going to buy it. So they would need to utilize a broker if they did that. How much does the broker take of it? What are they going to sell the business for? And then who's going to buy it? If it's not your neighbor, it's going to be a stranger. So that person needs to come visit us. Our home office uh, was in Birmingham, Alabama, and so they would need to literally fly down to Birmingham meet with us, talk to us, spend some time. We'd break bread with them and we'd learn who these people are. And from that, which was the, that usually was a 30 to 90 day process. We would make a decision if we would allow that transition to occur. Most of the time it did. By the time we had invited them to Birmingham, we already knew quite a bit about them. So it wasn't a, it, 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 if you were in Birmingham, it was because we believed in you already. But you, yeah, but you had the right to veto or approve, if you will, a right. buyer. That makes sense. And what multiple of EBITDA or SDE, seller's discretionary earnings, would you be guiding the franchisor that this is sort of the range that you could expect? Yeah, so cleaning businesses that are franchised uh, historically sell for a higher premium than just mom and pop cleaning businesses. That that probably goes for all industries um, because you you own more than a business. You own a territory, you own um, insight and guidance from a home office and so on. You've got the history behind you and a strong brand. So um, most of the time they were selling anywhere from three to five uh, mm -hmm. EBITDA. And that would range mainly because if you had strong growth behind you, that would project to strong growth in the future. If you were stagnant with some of that growth, then typically it would be a little bit lower than that. Um, like anything, if there was any urgency in the sell, then the price had to reflect that. You know, but so, so you're telling your franchisees that hey, you might expect somewhere between three to five times EBITDA if you want to sell this thing. Obviously, there are exceptions on either side of that depending on your circumstances. Mm -hmm. Had you started to think about at the time what 
corporate what's worth as a multiple of EBITDA. Like as you're growing and saying to your franchisees, yeah, three to five is realistic. Are you starting to form an opinion about what your company would be worth? Because of course you get, you've got this national network of franchisees. You get a royalty, you, you get a, an upfront training fee or what, a fee upfront. So you've got revenue that's both one time and ongoing. Are you starting to get any sort of sense of what your company might be worth as a multiple of EBITDA revenue or something? Well, what I learned, what you, sell a few franchises, every M&A group in America calls you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was certainly talking, I would talk to people and there was a lot of pie in the sky conversations and we were early still, you know, and so the conversations weren't as attractive as they would later become, but there was still some expectation that in our industry, the franchise industry, that the multiples actually would be a little bit higher than our industry because we're actually in two different businesses. You know, we're, we were called Two Maids in a Mop. We had the same logo and so on. But since we were in the franchise business instead of the cleaning business, it was a completely different business. And so with franchising comes contractual obligations. Um, in our case, there were you know, 10 plus year uh, terms. And so with that means there's 10 years of obligations the franchisee has to meet or they lose their territory in business. So that is somewhat attractive to most PE groups because of the just reliability, uh, consistency of what that income looks like down the road. So we, we started hearing a lot about what that might look like for us. I was not in a place at that time to think about something like that, mainly because one, that just we weren't at a size that was attractive enough for sure, for sure. But more importantly, I still had a lot of work to do. I was having fun back in those days and every, every day meant something. I wasn't sucked into a hundred meetings. So, it, so what kind of range were, were the M and a guys uh, saying you might get for the company? Well, but I mean, we heard anything from the high um, single digits to 20 plus. You know, it, it was all over the place, okay. but typically you were going to be somewhere in the 10 to 15 range um, for home service franchising. Um, you know, so it, it was attractive, um, certainly when that bottom line became stronger. Um, but at that particular time, it, it wasn't attractive enough for us to seriously consider it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just to be clear, you're they were sort of giving you ranges, but you were starting to triangulate around this idea of 10 to 15 times EBITDA for the, the corporate business, the revenue of which was these royalties and the training fee and so forth. Uh, you had expenses like your office staff, corporate staff, uh, training people, etc., yep. and then a, a bottom line profit. Mm -hmm. And how profitable was the business, the corporate engine? Like, did 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 you continue to have these sort of 20 and 30% margins or did, did that drop as so, you hired more people? Yeah, those margins are typically lower as a, for an early franchise or because you, you have two, you have more than two, but you have two primary streams of revenue as a franchise or early on. You've got royalty, which we talked about before, 6%. That's great. Um, that becomes a real cash cow for you if you do your job. Um, but early on, most of these businesses outside of the 11 that we transitioned, most of these were startups and 
And most cleaning companies don't just jump out of the box, you know, immediately. So we weren't making really enough money from the royalty stream to cover what we needed to do as a franchisor. So the other revenue stream are new franchise sales. And so that um, really is what drove us early on. The problem with that is M&A companies, uh, PE groups and so on, aren't real excited about those that revenue because that's yesterday's revenue. You know, they won't One tomorrow. Time. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we were paying the bills. We were making some money, uh, but most of that was due to the franchise selling. And we needed time for the royalty stream to catch up and to do its magic. So Got it. um, Got it. we we uh, were making money. And from a just bottom line perspective, we were making a lot of money. But it, it, again, it wasn't the right kind of money. Yeah. That's interesting. So if I'm reading this and reading this correctly, you're, you're growing like stink. You're going from 12 to 40, ultimately, uh, 40 location of 40 franchises. Did I get that right? Well, 40 million in revenue, yeah. 91 franchises. Yeah. Ultimately wow. we had 90 plus that they're doing great. Now the guys that purchased them were even hundred plus. So I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So you, you went from 12 to 91 franchises. So every time you sell one of those franchises, you get that nice 30, 40 grand worth of cash flow, nice bump. But when it comes to the value of your company, people looking at it saying, yeah, that's, that's one time. That's not helpful. What we want to see is the, is the royalty that's 6% coming in from all 91 franchises. That's what is going to really drive value because we know that's going to continue because it's 10 year contracts and, they're not going to want to give up their franchise. So they're going to keep sending you that 6%. Yeah. Getting- so our, our job was to foster that growth. Yeah. We, we had to provide the right kind of training support. We had to be as close to a business partner, franchisees as we could be without actually being a business partner. Um, and that meant coaching that meant mm-hmm. some tough love every now and then, you know, it meant celebrating a few successes. Uh, it meant period, you know, uh, partnering strong performing franchisees with below performing franchisees. Uh, we were always just pushing, pushing, pushing because we knew that was the ticket. That was the ticket to more franchise sales. That was the ticket to a higher bottom line. Um, it was, it was, it meant everything. You can't sell a franchise if your franchisees aren't making money. Yeah. yeah so it, it's too public and transparent, right? They talk and there's right. all sorts of reporting. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. One of the things I've known about the franchise business is that, Legals can be just a brute, like the expense of, of, of just having all the legal contracts in place. Like, what were you spending on legals in a, in a given year? I mean, was it astronomical? Yeah. So we were fortunate to be, when we sold those 11 franchised or corporate-owned stores into franchises, that was a bit of a windfall for us. And so we were able to use that money to invest in everything that we needed from the infrastructure to the legal requirements, uh, to even some of the marketing requirements to just get the word out that we were a franchise brand. And so um, that we also did a lot of the work ourselves. and that if we could go backwards, which we've done now with Pink Zebra moving, we'd probably do things differently because we made a few mistakes, but in general, um, you're probably looking at 500,000 minimum just to say you're a franchise brand um, to even close to a million dollars for some brands. It's based you on- mentioned mistakes. What was the biggest mistake you made in, the, in that transition? Well, I don't want to repeat the same thing over again, but we sold way too large of territories early on. Mm-hmm. We literally okay. sold to one group, all of DC Metro, um, which 
is was, was so, no, I don't know what we were thinking, but uh, we we did it. We were fortunate that we sold it to the right group because they're they've now done a great job building it. All they, those lobbyists need their homes clean, man. What are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, you know, those K Street lobbyists making seven million a year, they need their homes clean. Here, here's what I thought. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I thought if I if somebody gave me dirt to sell, I'm going to sell all the dirt. What I didn't think about is that some people only want to sell part of that dirt. And so we didn't, when you sell a large territory like that, you don't have enforcement over all the dirt. You just, if they're doing their job on a little bit of it, uh, they've meet, they've, they've met the obligations of the contract. And so by having a smaller territory, now you've forced more marketability and service of that territory. So we, we had to learn that the hard way. Super helpful. I want to move to the sale of the company. So you uh, you build this up again, 91 franchises, 40 million in revenue. I'm assuming the royalty stream starts to kick in whereby you're no longer living solely on the sale of the franchise. What triggered you to want to sell? I mean, why not go take a page out of Fred DeLuca's book and go from 91 to 910? Like what was the, was there a trigger that made you, you think yeah, now? If you don't talk to me even three years ago, possibly even before this sell, you know, earlier in the year, that would have been way off the radar. I, Two Maids of Mop was my baby from day one. Um, it was, it was my firstborn child, you know, so I didn't, I never thought I'd send it off to college. You know? So um, what triggered were sort of two distinct roads, I guess, that I started walking down. One, as we started growing as an enterprise, what I did on a daily basis became different. You know, I became a CEO instead of uh, just a hard charging entrepreneur who just did different things every day. And I did those things, you know, I, I did the speeches and had the meetings and had the, you know, managed the projects and all that good stuff, but it definitely wasn't energizing. It drained me. And so that was what I thought corporate America was. That's why I started. That's why I started a business in the first place. And so I started having these feelings that something was missing, even though I was living this like American dream, you know, that you, a, a young boy dreams about, you know, sure. watch Shark Tank. Um, it wasn't satisfying. Something was missing. So about that time, my mother-in-law had experienced a really negative experience with a local moving company. And it was really bad. I won't go through all the details. It was atrocious, like how bad it was. So I just... You know, I talked about finding out what markets to open by Googling. I did the same thing here. I just went to Yelp instead of Google, and I picked out three cities that I thought were sort of a good matrix of the of the U.S. I went to Seattle, Omaha, and Miami, and I literally just read reviews, both good and bad, and I wanted to see if they matched my mother-in-law's negative experience. And in all three cities, they did and then some. And so... You know, I looked at that as an opportunity because all these negative experiences were occurring, but people were spending thousands of dollars on this service. And it's just this crazy opportunity, I thought. <laughs> but you're, so you're talking about the decision to launch Pink Zebra. Yeah. So it, it all it all gets to all it all meets at some point. So when I saw that there was an opportunity there, the entrepreneur in me said, gosh, we we just built this thing, two maids in a mop, into a 90 location franchise network. 
why don't we do the same thing with PZ removing? But the, you just can't help yourself. I, I, I can't. Classic yeah, entrepreneur. I'm, you just can't help I'm, yourself. I'm sadistic. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, so, laughs> so. ah, okay. So you're being the CEO is boring. It's not what you want to do. I mean, it's what you left in the corporate world. And then you got the shiny ball over here, which is like, oh man, these moving companies are dropping the ball. You know, I can yep. make money there. Uh, so I guess if I'm putting myself in your shoes, I would think, okay, one option is just keep two maids and a mop going, bring in a, a president and go start the second franchise, the, the Pink Zebra, um, or sell two maids, or I, I don't know, did you consider bringing in a president to run two maids or we why did. sell? Why not just keep it? So I had recognized that doing the CEO thing wasn't my cup of tea. And so I had brought in someone that had, had already was serving as our CFO and promoted him to CEO. And he had pulled a lot of my responsibilities away and made life a lot easier for me. And that was really just to help the business grow. It wasn't to set the business up to sell. But when I talk, thought about what I didn't like about the business and what I liked about the moving industry, and I looked at the business, I saw a strong bottom line with growth behind it, but even more growth in front of it with a turnkey business model, a turnkey management system. Everybody was going to stay in place other than myself. And I said, oh my gosh, we, we may actually have something. This may we may have an opportunity here to sell this business. And um, I have a fun story um, that will be kind of interesting, I think, for your, your audience. So my wife and I were down in the Keys. We were in Key West and we were just there to, you know, personal vacation. And we were walking through one of the harbors and there was this huge super yacht, like super yacht, um, not, a, not just a boat, but a big one. And um, it was impressive, but whatever, you know, you just see it and move on. And, that should have been the end of that story, but there was the name of it was on the boat. And so I just Googled it. I don't know why I did that to this day. Cause why do you do that? Who Googles boat names? But I did. And when I did that, it took me through this winding uh, journey to figure out who owned it. And it turns out it was owned by a company called JM family um, who owned an enterprise, another subsidiary called home franchise concepts, which obviously, owns home service franchises like two maids in a mop. And so I um, told my wife that wouldn't it be cool if uh, home franchise concepts purchased two maids in a mop. So that was on, on the weekend. The next week I reached out to an M&A group and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about selling. Um, what do you know about this home franchise concept group? And they said, well, you know, we know a lot about them, but before you do that and just talk to one group, why don't you open this up to a bunch of people? So that's what started all of this was this random trip to Key West and Googling boat names. <laughs> so cool. And, and so you were going to sell it to home, you were going to approach home franchise concepts. Hey, they, they've got a strategic reason to buy us, et cetera. What was your reaction when the M&A team said, oh, hold on a second, let's create a marketplace for this. Not, let's not just go to jam hat in hand. Let's create a marketplace. What was your reaction to that idea? Well, I, you know, once you, once you tell your, once you tell yourself you're open to selling your business, you usually sell your business. <laughs> That's what I learned. Um, you, it's hard to go back, you know? And so once I entertained this idea, um, that's where all of my energy went, you know? So we were still running the business and doing all the things we had to do, 
But I had made that mental switch to say, okay, I'm, there's going to be a life after two mates in a mob now. And what do I need? What, to was do? It that, what was it that intrigued you about? Like, why was that mental switch so permanent? Like, not something you could go back on. Like, what was it about selling that had you excited? Or it's like, so it's a kind of an emotional feel feeling. So I, for the first time in a long time, felt something different in my stomach, in my heart. And it wasn't this sort of drain of like, oh gosh, I got to go do six hours of Zooms today. <laughs> um, it, it was, there's going to be another life where I get to go back to startup world, where I get to change some of the mistakes I made early on building two maids in a mop. Um, there was this excitement for the future. Uh, it really wasn't the financial windfall. I mean, obviously that was exciting, but that wasn't what motivated me. What motivated me was, sure, take some chips off the table, but this renewed sense of purpose, that's that's really what energized me. And once I started feeling how that felt, I said, gosh, that's I remember that feeling. I remember feeling that way 15 years ago. And Isn't that wild? I, yeah. I want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you didn't answer my question, or at least I didn't get a, a sufficient answer to it, which I guess I'm I'm curious about um, the the reaction you had to the MA team. Because some people when 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 they say when they get the advice, oh, you gotta shop your business, right? They say, Oh, I don't I don't wanna I don't want to shop it. I, you know, I know there's this one company over here that has a real strategic reason to buy us. And I know I might be able to get a little more if I kind of shop it, but I, I, th I get the sense they think it's sort of dirty or, or like you're prostituting yourself somehow that you're, you're going out and shopping your company and, and they have a, a, it's a minority, but it is a group of entrepreneurs who have a fairly negative reaction to the idea of shopping your business. So I'm curious to know what your reaction was when the M&A team said, hey, we got to shop this. We can't just go only to home franchise concepts. We got to go to a few different groups. I don't know. Maybe uh, for, for me, I never felt that way. I didn't feel like we were you know, pipping out the, the brand. I was generally intrigued to see all of all that early stuff, all that the early three to four months was nothing but internal collection of data. Uh, we were preparing the pitch that took a lot of effort and time. And so we didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to think, you know, what's, what does this other side look like? Whenever 500 different groups hear about this, you got to remember, I was already getting those emails. Like it was, I could have counted 500 groups already that had reached out over the last several years. So I was already accustomed to like people would just call and say, Hey, can I come meet with you? And you, it's it's a crazy industry because we had I had people who would fly in to Birmingham just to have a meeting with me to start a relationship so that whenever I was ready to sell, then I would I would have them on speed dial. So mm -hmm. it, it felt very normal at the time. Um, and once we got to the phase of, hey, world, we're here. Uh, it got real crazy uh, that I didn't expect that. but. It, oh. I want to get into that. What's the name of the M&A firm you used? We use Boxwoods, Boxwood Partners in Virginia. Boxwoods, yeah. Woods plural, Boxwoods. Okay, yeah. Boxwoods. So how many different organizations did Boxwoods shop you guys to? Like, I mean, did they have a short list of people they sent the teaser to? Like how many? So they, they specialize in franchises and mm. even have um, not a sole focus, but a pretty strong focus in home service franchising. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I knew a lot of other founders who had worked with them and kind of talked to them and said, what's this experience going to look like? And so they, they had told me that you're going to have hundreds of folks that they reach out to and, you know, I don't, who knows what that next that next phase looks like, but I don't know the exact number, but it was well over 200 different people. And what's, when you have hundreds of potential people on a list that are hearing about the company, no matter how many NDAs you get people to sign, the world finds out. Yeah. How did you approach your franchisees? Did you choose to let them know you were shopping the business or, or not? You wouldn't believe not one franchisee and only my leadership team at Two Maids and a Mop was aware of the transaction. They never we, found out? The franchisees never found out? On the day of the transaction. So like, I've got a great story on that one too. You got to remember okay. this was in two, late 2021. So COVID was still just, you know, moving around everywhere. Um, I don't know if you want me to fast forward to the end times, but I uh, I have a good story there because I was, my, my, my family was under quarantine for a three week period. And during that three week period, the transaction completed. And so I had to announce this to my team and all of our franchisees by Zoom. I couldn't even. Oh my gosh. I want to, I want to get to that. But first, I'm curious to know, like, again, 91 franchisees, you got 200 potential groups that Boxwood's talking to you about buying this company. Almost always, (laughs) someone would find out. So you must have been, or Boxwood's must have been very, uh, good at their work because they didn't, these franchisees, if I'm understanding correctly, never found out. No. And I, I feel like that's because it's two different worlds. The franchisees don't run in the same world as a lot of the franchisors. Did you feel guilty at all? For sure. Oh, no doubt. I felt you know, I was nervous. I was uh, scared, definitely guilty. I, I sort of felt like I had abandoned my child. Um, the, all the emotions. Uh, it wasn't, I still remember the day the money arrived and um, my, it, it, it didn't feel like I thought it would feel, you know, not, it wasn't bad. Uh, in fact, the group that purchased, I love, they're amazing people. And if, if I had to do ever again, I would do it all over again because of how great they are. Um, they, they wanted, and looks like they are treating the brand like it's, like it's their own as well. So it wasn't that I, because I sold it to someone who didn't respect it like I did. It just felt like it all was, yeah, I did this for 20 years, you know? So for 20 years of my life, I built this from the ground up and all of a sudden it's gone the next day. So it was, it was an emotional day for me, uh, oddly, because I didn't expect that, you know, I'm, I didn't expect to feel that way. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that in a sec, but just walk me through the deal. So a couple hundred potential bidders, um, how many formal offers, like letters of intent, did you receive? We had 12. Uh, so how this worked this way. We had multiple phases. The very first phase was sort of a, a tentative, are you like soft? Are you interested? And yeah. from those several hundred, we had, I don't know the exact number, but probably closer to 50 people that said, okay, let's learn more. And then once we, they said, let's learn more, then we kind of brought in, we started soliciting offers. All of this occurred, by the way, in about two to three weeks. Wow. <laughs> it happened very wow. fast. And um, from those 50 or so, uh, we had 12 actual offers with LOIs. And we, you know, there were some quantitative things, factors to consider, money, in other words, the terms, but there were some qualitative things to think about as well. 
Thankfully, one of those 12 was home franchise concepts because that was really who I was targeting from day one. But when, when you think about the 12, what was the, the, the range from the low to the high in terms of offer, like on a percentage basis? Was it like plus or minus 10%? Oh, plus no, or it minus was 50%? Like it was a huge range or? There were, there were, I'm going off memory now. There were three offers that at the top were sort of in the same ballpark. And then at the very bottom, it was just ridiculous. You know, like, get out of here. <laughs> like, yeah, so there's some bottom uh, feeders, some middle guys, and there's three that are, yes. that are that are strong. Right. The strong ones, I have to ask, we talked offline saying you had to be somewhat sensitive to valuation. I totally appreciate that. Um, so, but if you can share any details into the multiple of EBITDA uh, range you were looking at among those three offers, like, can you give us any sort of sense of, of what range those, those fell into? Yeah. You know, unfortunately I cannot disclose any of the terms of the transaction. I can tell you that recent history says that franchise franchisors, especially in the home service space, sell for 10 to 20, you know, times EBITDA, you know, so um, we were, we were expecting something similar in that range. It's a broad range, obviously. It's a big range. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what ultimately determines what side of that range you're on is, I mean, one, it's in the eye of the beholder. So, but the science typically is what can you, what can you do for me tomorrow? And so if you can paint a picture of what tomorrow looks like with precision, um, that obviously also shows growth, then you typically end up on the, on the upper side of that from my experience. So, um, that's, what we attempted to do when I said we had three to four minutes, three to four months of just preparation for the pitch. That's what we were really trying to do is pull all that data from our business and see what we could do to um, prove yesterday, prove today, and then also prove tomorrow. Um, and I feel like we did a pretty good job of that. Um, it helps that our industry, one, we've got the contracts with franchising, but it also helps that we are in the recurring revenue business. And so, you could see what that $150 customer was going to pay you a year from now. Super helpful. So what you're, what you're used to seeing in home service franchising is sort of 10 to 20 times EBITDA. Where you sit on that range in large measure has to do with A, your growth rate, B, the visibility of your future revenue, i.e. how much recurring revenue, contract revenue you had. You obviously being in, in, in home cleaning, people need their homes cleaned every two weeks, every month or whatever. So you had that recurring revenue. How far into the future did you project out those income streams for an acquirer? Like, were you looking at a year, two years, five years? Like, what, what were you doing? We projected it out three years. Uh, we could have probably went deeper than that. Um, and what was your churn rate? Like, what, if you had 100 customers start a cleaning contract on day on, the, on day one, one year later, how many of those 100 would still be, uh, still be uh, under contract? Most of them. Uh, that was what was probably 80%, still in. 90%? Uh, you know, I can't, I don't know the exact number anymore. It was more than... It was more than 70%, uh, but I don't, okay. yeah. So it, it, it was a strong number. Yeah. Uh, and most of that was because if you think about your own, it's who wants to go through the hassle of hiring another cleaning service. If they're doing their job and they're affordable, just keep using, you know, we did a lot of good things, but uh, sometimes it was just because it was easier to keep using us. 
Yeah, yeah. So you've got 70 to 80% you know, retention rates, longevity to your contracts, you're projecting out three years and, and you're making that case. With these three offers that were all sort of premium offers, did did you kind of play one off the other or did you take, did they give you that kind of first and Well, you know, I had zero communication directly with them. So we okay. were, we were working with M&A group and they would talk to us about what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, they all, they knew my affinity for one of the suitors. And so, what, what was it about these guys? Just the boat? You're like, well, I love your boat. I, I mean, that's what started it. I, I knew the other here. brands and I had spoken with, several of the founders and learned what happens after these guys purchase. I wanted someone that loved the, the business as much as I did. And okay. the M&A guy says, you're crazy. That's just not going to happen. But I felt like without, I didn't know any of them personally, but I felt like that they would. And so I was nervous that we wouldn't receive the kind of offer from them. Um, thankfully we did. And so they, um, they were one of those three, you know, and so we, started looking at the different terms of all three of those, um, even though they were all very similar, I, um, I made sure that I, our M&A group knew that we really wanted to, to do as much as we could to focus on one. And how did they structure your earn out or your hold back? Did, did you have a portion of the proceeds that were put at risk in the future or like how, how was that structured? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if I can answer a lot of that because uh, I, I do respect the other group and want to kind of respect the contract we have. So I, I don't know if I can talk a lot about what that transaction looks like in terms of what okay. happened. What did, so let's, we'll take things out of your business. Did you learn anything in your research about what's typical in home franchising, uh, home service franchising about, is it usually like a, like a 70, 30 cash, 30% uh, uh, earn out or is it like a, uh, equity holdover? Like what's the normal structure? You're yeah. Using? So, um, there, yeah, I don't know what today's market looks like, but at that particular time, the group we were working with M&A group kind of gave us a brief, you know, what the industry kind of looks like. And at that particular time, it was a different time. I know it just, it was just a year and a half ago, but it was the height of the market, you know? And so there wasn't, there weren't as many earn out opportunities as there were even, you know, a year or two before that, uh, or maybe even historically. But at that particular time, most of the deals from what I understood were, were cash-based and mostly at least. And so I don't know what today looks like. Mm, got it. That's what we were seeing back in 2021. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. So where does it go from there? I mean, your, your M&A firm, Boxwoods, is doing the negotiation. You've got these three premium offers. They're going back and forth a little bit. Did, did, was, there, like, was there any sort of final climax to this negotiation where you all got in the room? Or like, I know yeah. that you told Boxwoods, look, we, we, really, we really like home franchise concepts. Yeah. So ironically, we... I don't know if ironic is the word, but we, we had a strong bid from one of the, the wrong ones. Uh, so um, the M&A group said, you better take it. And I said, well, but it's not the right one. Uh, and so this was all happening on a Saturday. It was, so we had- Sorry, I, I missed what you said in the very beginning. You had a very strong offer from who? I, well, another group, yeah. So, one of the other Yeah, yeah. And so when, when we, um, 
it was it was very exciting. You know, this was all happening very quickly. It was a weekend on top of that when, when this top bid came in and the top bid said, I want to know by midnight um, today. And so on a Saturday, you know, the weekend. Yeah. So uh, I uh, I said, well, we got to we got to reach back out to the group I love, you know, and so that communication occurred and uh, good things happened very quickly on that Saturday. And so we were able to, to go a different direction. But it was the mo- the most exciting Saturday of my life. I can tell you that. <laughs> so you okay? Let me let me see if I can parse the your your words here. So, uh, or at least read between the lines. So you're saying so Saturday this this group comes out of nowhere saying here we're going to up our bid. We're going to make it. We're going to put a little bit of cherry on the top here. But we need to know by the end of end of day today, midnight or whatever. So you reach out to the guys that you really want to partner with because you like their reputation, you like their boat. And you say, look, can you match this or can you get close? Because I really want to work with you, but this is a pretty sexy offer. And they say, all right, we'll up our bid, and boom, you got a deal done at midnight on Saturday. Am I getting? Am I am I sort of reading between the lines correctly? You're you're close to what happened. Yeah, yeah. So you know, as much as you can share. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it on the weekend. It's it's amazing. Yeah, so, you know, we we have two little. My wife and I have two young kids. So this was all happening as I'm being dad. It was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that being challenging. Hey, I wanna I wanna talk about. Uh, Pink Zebra. But before we do that, are you up for a quick lightning round of questions? Sure, let's do it. One or two word answers, fine. What's the slimiest trick that an investor or acquirer tried to play on you? One word answer to that? Um, Or a phrase or a sentence? (laughs) Uh, We had a lot of people who tried to lowball the bid and use their time in the industry against us because we had never been through this before. Um, we were new kids, you know, on the block and they weren't. And so they said, you're crazy if you want that because we've done this before and you haven't. And that early on, those were their, those were the original bids and I didn't last long, but for a day or two, I'm like, Oh gosh, maybe they're right. You know? So it's all we're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> Biggest mistake you made personally during the selling process. Well, I don't, you know, I don't think it's a mistake, but I, I, the M&A group probably would just would agree when I say this, that I was very focused on one group. (laughs) So that's, that's not something you, I would do, you know, for most people probably should be more open-minded about it. But I I was, I was solely focused. Again, maybe every founder loves their brand as much as I did, but I really loved that brand. And so I didn't want to just leave it to the highest bidder. I wanted somebody who could also love it like I did. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Selling a business can be an emotional roller coaster. What what was the lowest emotional point you reached during the process of selling your company? Uh, it maybe not during the selling of it. There was such a frenzy of activity and decisions that I didn't have a lot of time to think. Honestly, it was about what was the first. So, like I said, I had to I had to announce this decision via Zoom, and so my plan was to talk face to face with my team, tell everybody and talk to one, everyone directly, but I couldn't do that. I, I, I was, it was crazy time. And so I couldn't revisit, I couldn't visit the office until two weeks, two weeks after I made the announcement. And so my office was still there like a museum. And so 
they were waiting for me to come clear it out. And so I walk in and that's my office and everyone's already doing their own thing. And here I am walking in the office, this old guy in town, you know, and it was very awkward and sad because that used, that was my home, you know, that was my place. And I felt like a stranger. So it was a, a weird empty feeling because everyone loved me. I think um, no one, ex- no, they expected me there that day, but I wasn't involved in any decisions. There was no meeting scheduled for me. I just was there to say goodbye and collect picture frames, you know? So it was, uh, it was a weird feeling. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Hey, Ron, just like, hang on a second. I got to, I'm going to sell the phone with the new boss. Just tell you, just move the jacket out <laughs> of the chair. Just hang, make yourself comfortable. Yeah. I get the, uh, the vibe. When would you get, like they were throwing cardboard boxes in there to pack up. <laughs> yeah. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> what was the highest emotional point you reached during the process? Oh, well, you can probably guess on that one. It was it was the day the funds showed up. You know, I, we were in quarantine when they showed up. And so uh, my wife and I, a few years ago, had um, purchased a, a, a home in an area lake here. And so we were quarantined at this lake house and um, it showed up and you know, we couldn't really go party Vegas style. We had two little kids with us, but we, we went out, we celebrated as a family. It was, it was a fun night. That's cool. Were you refreshing on your mobile or on your desktop? Um, mobile. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually the mobile, like yeah. refresh, yeah. refresh, refresh. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, as you prepared for your exit, uh, were there any resources you can point people to? I've already written down Purple Cow as a great book from Seth Godin. Were there any of the books, courses, speakers, conferences that you can point people to to learn about the process of kind of exit and, and what you learned in the process? So I, I was fortunate. I, I'm, I'm an avid reader and I read as much nerdy business stuff as you can possibly read. But this particular process, there's not a ton of literature out there, you know, like in your, your case, it's, it's phenomenal because it's really a void out there. Um, however, I was fortunate to meet Boxwoods many years ago. They, they're very present at industry events and you, know, you have these informal conversations, you hear them on the stage and you talk. So I learned a lot of the, about the process by just being active in our industry. So that's what I would probably advise is you know, find your industry, attend some of those conferences and learn. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I want to underscore that for my listeners. You know, being part of your industry is a great thing to learn, but it's just an amazing uh, thing to be there uh, for the connections you make, the 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 M and A world, et cetera. It's it, it happens at the industry conference. So great to great that you did that. What did you celebrated with your family during quarantine at the lake house? What did you buy yourself as a trophy to commemorate the win? <laughs> this goes. Uh, this sounds gross when I say it out loud because I just said we have the lake house, but we we doubled down on that. We bought a, a beach house, and so yeah, we we. Um, <laughs> We, yeah. so, so you got the lake house and the beach. We house. like water. Okay. <laughs> Did you get a boat? We we have a boat now. It's sort of. A, Is it the same size as the JM one? No, no. Um, not even close. But we we what do have. Buy? What kind of boat? It's a fake boat. It's a pontoon boat. So it's not okay, a real boat. Like a party barge. Yeah, it's a. It's we have. It's you're not going to go. You know fight the waves of the Gulf of Mexico in it, but you, you can put around with the kids and have some fun. 
Yeah, a great place to watch the sunset and stuff like that. Well, I'm thrilled. I'm glad to hear you bought yourself a trophy. And and you're not just sitting on the boat because you've scratched the itch. Your mother-in-law had this terrible moving experience, and now you're off building another business, Pink Zebra Moving. <laughs> Describe this business. What what I love by the name, the, the, the name, I, I yeah. see the nod to Purple Cow, Pink Zebra. There you go. What, what, um, Tell me about this business. Yeah, so it's a moving company. We exist for a purpose. That's one of the things when I look back to Two Mates and a Mob, there there was a lot of growth. And our purpose was really to dream and to just build a national brand, an empire. Uh, we want to do the same thing here, but we want to do it for a certain reason. And so what we want to do is disrupt this industry by delivering what I call unique and remarkable customer experiences. We just want to create a better, more positive customer experience. And I feel like that's missing. That's, that's a real problem in this industry. Um, even some of the largest movie companies out there um, create some pretty negative experiences for its customers. The average ticket can be in the thousands. We have plenty of people who spend $10,000 plus on their move. And when it's all said and done, they don't like it. They actually regret it, wish they didn't have to do it. But then when it's time to move again, they hire another moving company and spend 10 grand. So we feel like there's an opportunity to disrupt this industry. Most people, when they disrupt an industry in 2023, do it by writing code. Uh, that's, that's, I'm sure there's an opportunity for that somewhere. But for us, it's exciting because all we've got to do is make people happy. And so our, our tagline is we make moving fun. We intend to do that. We surprise people. We entertain people. I kind of call us the Disney of moving. Uh, we we put on a show. Uh, it's a real stage, like a theater, where we we show up at a home. And as as much as I love growing and scaling and doing and recreating the magic that we had at Two Maids and a Mob, what's most exciting to me is to be able to change something about an industry. If I look 10, 20 years, 30 years from now, if this industry, this moving industry is different because of us, that's the legacy I want to be known for. Awesome. The company's called Pink Zebra moving give us a website to go to yeah so there's if you're a consumer just go to pinkzebramoving.com if you're interested in the franchise opportunity pinkzebramovingfranchise.com we'll give you all the information you need to know about the investment what your expectations will be as a franchise owner what we do to train and support you how, how do we get you open uh, so pinkzebramovingfranchise.com you'll learn as much as you can about this business and our opportunity awesome and we will put both of those links in the show notes uh, at builttosell.com. Ron, if people want to reach out to you personally beyond Pink Zebra, uh, do you accept LinkedIn connections or are you a Twitter guy? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Yeah, uh, electronically? For sure, LinkedIn. I'm a nerd, like I said earlier. So I am one of those guys that lives on LinkedIn. So um, yeah, reach out. I, I, uh, I receive requests all the time to learn more about my exit. Um, and learn about franchising. Franchising is a unique industry that either you know a lot about it or you know nothing. And so if someone's interested to learn, I'd love to, to help them. Great. And Ron's got a relatively common name, Ron Holtz. So I'll put the uh, connection to Ron's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at Built the Cell so you can grab that there. Ron, thanks for doing this. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Uh, anytime you want to Right on a pontoon. Uh, let me know. Come on <laughs> you might, you might regret that. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Ron Holt. If you did and you're not subscribed to the podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's show, including the super yacht feature, which I have shared with you, head over to builttosell.com, where not only there you're going to find that, but also definitions for all the technical terms referenced in today's podcast. Also a note, if you don't want to listen to the podcast and you would rather watch it to kind of get some of those emotions and feels from the guest, you can head over to our YouTube page, which is at Built to Sell Radio, where there you'll not only be able to hear this interview, but you'll be able to see Ron and John's reaction throughout the entire thing. So go ahead and visit our YouTube page, which is at Built to Sell Radio. If you know of someone like Ron who'd be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttocell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. We'll talk to you again next week. 